Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 10, Mountains, Mausoleums, and Music. It is now December 1636, and our adventurers are making their way south along the coast of the Caspian Sea in what is still one of the most dangerous places on Earth. We ended the last episode with a brief history of the major conquests of the region. As I write this episode, the most recent military conflict has ended in the old way. A prolonged siege, with all the suffering that entails, followed by conquest, the expulsion of civilians, and celebration by the victors. This particular chapter of the ancient story started with the fall of the Soviet Union, when Azerbaijan and Armenia both claimed the mountainous region of Nagorno-Karabakh, some 150 miles from Nisive, where our ambassadors are currently located. Armenia became the first nation in history to adopt Christianity as its official religion in 301 AD. In the early 1990s, it claimed Nagorno-Karabakh as part of its ethnic homeland, and until a few months ago, Armenians were the majority of the population. There was no country named Azerbaijan until 1501 AD. Prior to that, it was known as Albania, and King Urnayr officially adopted Christianity as the state religion in the 4th century. It would remain that way until the 8th century, when Arab military colonization rapidly spread Islam throughout the region. The Muslim state of Azerbaijan was proclaimed in 1501 by Shah Safavi, the founder of the Persian Safavid dynasty. The modern state of Azerbaijan, which is still Muslim, claimed Nagorno-Karabakh as part of its national territory in the early 1990s, and the region is inside its internationally recognized borders. As I record this episode, a 10-month siege, a blockade of the only route into the landlocked area, and a military assault begun in September have all come to an end, and some 75,000 Armenian refugees have fled from the victorious Azerbaijani troops. Of the victory, a spokesman for Azerbaijan's president said, Now the issue is over. We restored our pride. We also restored historical justice. Of course, if there was such a thing as historical justice, Azerbaijan would not be a Muslim state, and the region would still belong to its indigenous peoples. But no one knows who those peoples are, and the fighting is not over because it will never be over. All we can say for certain is that the only historical constant is human pride. The fighting is most certainly not over as the Holstein mission passes through in 1636. As noted in the previous episode, the Persians and Ottomans have been at war since 1518, as Adam Olarius is researching his new maps of the Caspian Sea and Persia. In 1635, Ottoman Sultan Murad IV captured the city of Erevan from the Persians. Only 150 miles from Nagorno-Karabakh, the city is known today as the Armenian capital of Yerevan. Persian Shah Safi counterattacked in the spring of 1636 and retook Erevan from the Ottomans. His peace proposals failed, however, and in 1638, Sultan Murad took the city of Baghdad from the Persians after a siege of 39 days.
Christmas is rapidly approaching, and the Holstein Embassy crosses four rivers before making camp in the village of Mordu. I have been unable to locate a village of that name on any modern map, nor does it appear on the new map of Persia published by Olarius in 1656. It does appear on various later maps, including one by Joachim Ottens, published in 1723, one from 1730 by Guillaume de Lille, and another by Emmanuel Bowen in 1747. A map by Dutch seaman Karl van Verden, commissioned by the Russian Navy as a survey of the Caspian in 1719, was one of the most accurate to date and shows the rivers crossed by our German ambassadors. This map led directly to Peter the Great's 1722 invasion of Baku and Durbant, and the subsequent Russian hegemony in the region. Olarius tells us the name Mordu signifies a fen, bogs or marshland, and there are many freshwater springs nearby. There was also an abundance of swans in the marshes, and local residents collect swan feathers for beds and pillows. Today the city of Shabran is just west of a large coastal marsh, and Bowen's map from 1747 shows Mordu to the east. The village has either been renamed or abandoned. Ambassador Brueggemann is still upset about the lack of horses supplied by the governor of Durban, and he sends a complaint back to the mayor of Nisave. The mayor sends a reply. He could not imagine what pleasure we took in carrying along with us sails, brass guns, and carriages, which could only cause us trouble and slow down our journey, Olarius tells us. And if the ambassador continued complaining, then the governor would easily continue finding ways to justify himself. Nevertheless, Bergman's whining pays off, and the next day, twenty more horses arrive. They make another fifteen miles or so on December 24 and set up camp at a caravanserai near the foot of what Olarius calls Mount Barmach. The wagoners and mule drivers from Durbant threaten to leave the caravan and return home. If that happens, the Germans will have to stay until alternate transportation can be brought from Shamaki, some fifty miles south over the Caucasus. Ambassadors Brueggemann and Crucius order the drums to be beaten, summoning everyone together to be informed of the crisis, and the command is given that everyone should abandon their baggage and walk to Shamaki. Upon reaching that city, word will be sent back to the governor of Durbant, demanding that he make good on the losses. The men from Durbant decide it is in their best interest to stay. Caravanserais are Persian inns built within a day's journey of one another, Olarius tells us. Although the best of them may have additional rooms, none of them are furnished. This particular one is very ancient, measures 42 paces square, and is nothing but a great courtyard surrounded with four bare stone walls and a roof to keep them dry. Over the stone gate are inscriptions that no one is able to read, apparently in some form of Hebrew. The Persian word caravanserai comes from the word caravan, which means people who travel in a group, and the word serah, which means house or place of residence. The first type of caravanserais were found along the Achaemenid Empire's royal road, a 1,600-mile ancient road used by royal express couriers. Mount Barmach is also mentioned by other European travelers, including Engelbert Kempfer, a German scholar and physician who spent a decade on cultural and scientific expeditions, and French geographers Pierre Duval and Guillaume de Lille. Kempfer departed from Sweden in 1683, 
reached Isfahan in 1684, and traveled throughout Persia until 1688. He also spent three years in Japan and Siam and returned to Europe via Holland in October 1693. Duval was geographer to the Sun King, Louis XIV of France, and among other achievements, published maps of the known world in 1658. De Lille was elected to the Academy of Sciences in 1702, became geographer to Louis XV in 1718, and ran his own map-making establishment in Paris until his death in 1726. The location of Mount Barmach is noted on Olarius's map of Persia's Gilan province, and he says it lies within a quarter league of the Caspian Sea, or about a mile, and by reason of its extraordinary height is seen at a very great distance. It is Christmas Day, and they do their Christian devotions in the stable housing the camels. Afterward, Olarius and several companions decide to climb the mountain. There is no peak known as Barmach today, but based on that description, it is probably Sirakskaladagi, elevation 4,619 feet, which is also the location of an ancient ruined 5th century fortress named Chiragali, which means lamp castle in Azerbaijani. Not knowing there is a path to the summit, they risk their lives on the climb. As he puts it, we understood since that there is a path which will commodiously bring one to the top of it. But we knew it not then, so that we ran great hazard of our lives in getting up by dreadful precipices. The mountain has on the very top a great rock straight up, and very steepy of all sides, from which it hath the name of Barmach, that is, finger, because it looks like a finger stretched out above the other adjacent mountains. At the foot of the great rock, and right on the edge of the mountain, Alarius says, there is a plain of about fifty perches square. A perch is a surveyor's tool and a unit of length, also called a rod, and the definition used by Olarius might not be the same as we know it. Today, one square rod is about thirteen hundred square meters. In the middle of the plain they find a stone well surrounded by ruins of a very thick wall, flanked at the corners with certain towers and bulwarks. And they are convinced that once upon a time it had been an impregnable fortress. They find two more ruined structures above the first, and Olarius tells us that the Persians believed they were built by Alexander the Great, and demolished by Tamerlane. He imagines they are among the fortifications called the Caspian Gates, which we discussed in the last episode. They rest for a while at the top, sing the Te Deum, the Christian hymn sometimes known as the Ambrosian Hymn, eat figs from trees growing among the rocks, and renew among themselves the friendship which they have mutually promised each other at various times along the journey. At some point along the climb they had discovered the path, and so they follow it down with a lot less trouble and danger than they experienced on the way up. At the foot of the mountain today is the Kalalti Hotel and Spa, a five-star health and resort complex. I have no evidence that this resort is on the same plot of land as the old Caravanserai, but I like to imagine it is. A 2023 map of 54 ancient Persian Caravanserais, published by UNESCO, does not include the one visited by Olarius. They leave Barmach on December 26 under fair skies and temperatures hotter than Germany in May. Their destination is the city of Shimaki, 
and the wagons take the flat coastal road to Baku, while the ambassadors and others, including Alarius, cross the mountains on horseback. They make five leagues, or just over twenty miles, and reach the mountain village of Chenega, which produces excellent honey and fruit, but is troubled by contaminated water. The 1730 map by Guillaume de Lille shows three roads from Nisive to Shimaki. The coastal route of some 100 miles that turns westward and inland after skirting the mountains. A middle route through the mountains and Chenega that is half the distance. And a more westerly way that appears to be the most direct route. Modern maps only show the coastal M1 highway to Azerbaijan's capital city Baku and the M4 to Shimaki but a network of unmapped dirt roads and trails serve the mountain villages. Like the village of Mordu, Chenega has either been renamed or abandoned. They arrive in a village named Pirmaras on December 27, which Olarius says is very famous by reason of one of their saints named Sayyid Ibrahim, whose sepulcher is to be seen there. It is also home to the grave of one saint Tirbaba, who was master to Ibrahim. I failed to identify the modern location of the village, or either of the two saints, or their sepulchres, because the only references I could find are in the very book we are following on our own literary journey, and so the only information I can relay is what Olarius himself tells us. If you know of any additional source materials, please leave me a comment on the website for this podcast, semipropilgrim.substack.com. The inhabitants of this village of Pirmaras never drink any wine, Olarius writes, for fear, as they say themselves, that breaking the laws of Muhammad and the directions of the Quran, the holiness of the place might thereby be profaned. At the entrance to the village, near the sepulchre of Sayyid Ibrahim, there is a great stone cistern, fifty-two feet in length and twenty in breadth, which in the winter time they fill with water, snow, and ice, to be used in the great heats and drought of summer as well as for themselves as their cattle. The Persians confirm that the sepulchre is ancient, and that the great Tamerlane refused to destroy it, even though he destroyed everything else in his path. The walled building has two courts, and the local officials will only give permission for Olarius to enter the first court, which is full of gravestones. I had a great desire to get a little nearer, he writes, and, if it were possible, to see the saint's sepulchre. And so he returns later that evening and spends a half-hour copying the Arabian inscriptions engraved on the walls. The Persian guards, who imagined what I did was in honor of their saint, allowed me to proceed in what I was about, he says, admitting that his ulterior motive is to sneak into the second court, the door being locked only with a simple wooden pin. It was no hard matter for me to open it and to get in, he says. He finds many arched apartments, dark because they are lit only by sunlight coming through small windows, and he admits being a bit frightened. In the first apartment, opposite the door, is a tomb about two feet high, with several steps up into it and surrounded by an iron grate. A door on the left leads to a great gallery with whitewashed walls and a floor covered with rich carpets. To the right is a room with vaulted ceilings and eight more tombs. It was through this last vault that people passed into a third, in which was the sepulchre of Sayyid Ibrahim, he writes. The tomb was two feet above ground and was covered with a carpet of yellow damask. At the head and feet, and also on both sides, there were wax candles and lanterns on great brass candlesticks, 
and from the roof of the vault hung more lamps. As he leaves the complex, Olarius encounters the minister of the Holstein mission, who expressed so great a desire to go into it that I ventured one more time to go in along with him, and he went in a second time along with our physician. St. Turbaba's tomb is about two musket shots to the east of the village, and upon the door is carved an Arabic phrase meaning, O God, open this door. Several chambers are cut into the rock where pilgrims do their devotions, and some are so high that they require ladders of some twelve to fifteen feet long to get up to them. Three of the Germans help each other climb to the top of the tomb, where they find four spacious chambers, and within those are several platforms cut into the rock that serve as beds. But what we thought most strange was that we found in that vault, upon the very top of the mountain, such an abundance of mussel shells that induce a man to imagine the very rock was made of sand and shells. Polaris also tells us that on the return trip from Persia, they see several shelly mountains along the Caspian Sea, and promises to tell us more about them later in the book. They intend to leave Pirmaras for Shamaki on December 29, but the governor sends word that they should stay another night. We could not imagine what might occasion this delay, Olarius writes, but it was told us afterward that the governor's astrologer said it was not a fortunate day to receive strangers. In compensation, the governor sends four great pitchers and two leather bags of wine, a good store of pomegranates, apples, pears, quinces, and chestnuts, and two excellent horses, settled and bridled, one for each of the ambassadors. So they leave Pirmaras the next day at eight in the morning. Two leagues from the city, they are met by hundreds of horsemen and foot soldiers who accompany them to a field, where the governor is waiting on a small hill with another five hundred men, including six armed archers on his right, six armed musketeers on his left, and behind him a great number of mounted gentlemen clothed in garments of brocade and caps embroidered with gold and silver. Brueggemann wants to stay on the road and force the governor to come to them, but their Persian guide says the road is deep with mud, and besides that they are expected to ride out and meet the governor. When they do, the governor gives them the greatest honor imaginable, which is to shake hands with the ambassadors, a custom contrary to that of the Persians. Wine is poured into a silver vessel, and everyone drinks once to the ambassadors and twice to the governor. On the march into Shimaki, the Holstein musicians play loud music on hauboys, timbrels, cornets, and tabors, or as we would call them, oboes, tambourines, trumpets, and drums. The hauboy, which is spelled H-A-W-E-B-O-Y-E by our English translator John Davies, appears to be an extinct instrument called a hautboy, a woodwind instrument with a double reed that is best described as one stage in the development of the instrument that began as a shalm and ended as the oboe. The Persians play an instrument called a karanai, which Olarius says is somewhat like a hauboy, but made of brass and more than eight feet long. Four of them make a noise that not only has no harmony, but is also more like dreadful howling than music. The governor stops again to toast the ambassadors, and a jester, which the Persians call Tazush, does what jesters do everywhere while also singing pleasant songs and playing the castanets. An Armenian battalion of 2,000 foot soldiers is on parade, 
each of five regiments displaying different colors, their musicians playing pipes and cymbals. All the people bid the Germans welcome by clapping their hands, turning their caps around on their heads, or flinging hats up into the air. The governor stops for a third toast, and as they reach the city gate, all the musicians play so loudly that Olarius says the sound might have drowned out thunder itself. The procession reaches the palace, and the governor invites the two ambassadors and their high-ranking advisors to dinner. We passed through three very fair chambers, Olarius writes, and were brought into a spacious hall very sumptuously furnished, and hung with excellent paintings, representing those parts which are not commonly seen naked. A fountain in the shape of a goblet sits in the center of the dining room, surrounded by bottles and flagons of wine, and tables filled with fresh fruit and preserves. As some of their other Persian hosts have done, the governor provides European chairs for the ambassadors, but this time he also sits on a chair and seats his guests at his right hand. His lieutenant, astrologer, physician, and several other persons of quality sit on the floor at his left. Olarius and his companions are seated on the floor on the other side of the room. They eat the fruit, drink the wine, a course of meat arrives and is removed after an hour, the tables are taken away, and the whole hall is covered with great pieces of linen. The carver hands each person a huge napkin, three feet square, and brings in great pewter dishes full of meat, which is cut up and served in little dishes. Each guest has a pot to spit in, into which bones, parings, cores of fruit, and other superfluities are cast, which might otherwise damage the tapestries or the floor. Music plays as they eat, consisting of lutes, violins, tambourines, and singers, which make a wretched kind of harmony that contrasts with the beauty surrounding them. Dancers perform as if they would give us a taste of the delights of the terrestrial paradise, after the hardship we had suffered since our coming from Moscow. The palace sits on a small hill in the middle of the city, and the governor has ordered all the residents to put lamps in their windows. Olarius says the sight is like twenty thousand stars, enough to dispel the greatest darkness of the night. Musicians are also playing down in the city, and the sound echoes off the city walls as the dinner proceeds. At some point, and one can only think it is after much wine has been consumed, the governor calls for a musket and demonstrates his marksmanship by shooting out two of the indoor lamps. The feast lasts until late in the evening, and when it gets cold, they move into a room with a fireplace. More fruit is served along with more wine and vodka, and the party goes on until midnight. Olarius says the Persians drink more than they should, probably out of some kind of diplomatic necessity. The governor has arranged for the Germans to be lodged among the Armenians of the court because they are all Christians. But their train of baggage has not arrived, and their rooms are not furnished with beds, benches, or tables. And thus, after such a wonderful supper, our ambassadors spend a very uncomfortable night sleeping on the floor. In the morning, one of the Persians who had drunk too much the night before is found dead in his bed. In the next episode, the gentleman who killed himself with vodka is buried, the Armenians celebrate a baptism of the cross by swimming naked in an ice-covered river, the governor receives word from the Shah that anyone who insults or injures the Germans shall be executed by dismemberment, and we spend three months in the city of Shimaki, 
on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.